0: Welcome everyone After our, our two-week hiatus. I'm um, delighted to introduce uh, James Hammerham from uh, the Department of French University College. Uh, many of you will know uh, James already. Uh, he's he's our, our, one of our uh, enlightenment specialists and he works with, uh, specifically well, most particularly on uh, Voltaire, and uh, he's, he's worked extensively in uh, editing works and for the works of Voltaire, with the Voltaire Foundation at Oxford, alongside um, uh, publishing uh, widely on uh, French Enlightenment, uh, uh, particularly his, his monograph, Voltaire and the Parlement of France, which uh, came out with the, the, uh, from Oxford with the Voltaire Foundation, and m- most recently, uh, this year, uh, a collection of essays on Dero, the dark side of Dero, edited with Schubert Pierce. So, um, thanks for a speech, speak to the and you. Thanks so very much, Joe. Um,
1: just to, to give you the, the, the context of this talk, as um, Joe mentioned, I contribute to the complete works of Voltaire, and I'm currently preparing with a colleague in um, Oxford, Janet Garden. Uh, critical edition of the Prestigious siècle de Lucan's, uh, Voltaire's history of uh, his own time. Um, when we want Voltaire these days, we tend to want Saint Voltaire, uh, prophet of a tolerance as beautiful as it is European. But in my paper today, I want you to provide you with an uglier side. Voltaire the Historian. It seems that, periodically, attempts are made to resurrect Voltaire's reputation as a historian, but they rarely gain any real traction, with the result that Voltaire is not generally considered to be a great historian. He is nonetheless considered an important Enlightenment historian, which suggests that Enlightenment history is a lesser form of history. Another way of looking at this would be to say that Enlightenment history is not a lesser form, but... Just a different form, as Karen Bryan noted in a late 20th century work that attempted to resurrect Voltaire's history. And I quote: "18th century historians had a more dynamic sense of historical writing as an arena in which both historian, both, in which both historian and reader exercise political, emotional, and aesthetic choices. Together, they create not an imagined but an interpretive community engaged in a rhetorical arbitration of their own history." She explains further that a highly defined generic sense of narrative history was precluded by a residual sense of its continuity with other literary kinds, by an idea of the historical contingency of more or less sophisticated forms of historical representation, as well as by a more general understanding of history as rhetorical performance. Finally, uh, she, she says that history was understood and I quote, as a form of spectacle designed to awaken the imagination and stimulate the sensibility. The need to resurrect Voltaire's reputation as a historian stems, of course, from the fact that the, 18th, that the Enlightenment um, and Enlightenment history writing never really recovered from the criticism it received at the hands of 19th and 20th century historians. One of the major criticisms of Enlightenment history in general, and Voltaire's histories in particular, is that they were excessively presentist. More recent studies of Voltaire's history by, uh, among others, Schieffer Pierce and uh, Pierre Force, while not attempting to deny this presentism, have instead highlighted it as a positive feature, with Pierre Force suggesting that it is a result of Voltaire's preference for modern history and part of, and I quote, a new conception of the relationship between the past and the present. While for fosse this means that Voltaire is frequently judgmental and moralising, a more accurate definition of the presentist perspective is as follows, and it's from the critic Tony Bennett, history influences the present not as a set of real past events, but as an account of such events in their bearing on currently existing relationships. Such an approach is most certainly adopted by Voltaire in his major historical works. It's evident in what could be considered his historical masterpiece, the Siècle de Louis XIV, the age of Louis XIV, which, while full of praise for that age, was also keen to emphasize a critical historical perspective that belonged very much to the time of writing in the mid-18th century. His presentism is perhaps even more evident in his most ambitious historical work, the Essay sur les mœurs, translated as the Essay on Manners, with with that term mœurs having a a more uh, broader meaning that includes um, customs and traditions as well. And in this work, he points out at length the barbarity and intolerance of previous ages, imposing his presentist perspective. The siècle de Louis XIV, is at once a precursor from the perspective of its composition, a continuation from the perspective of its historical narrative, and a counterpoint to the Essay sur les maux. Voltaire noted in a letter to Duclos, where he outlines his plan for the 7 de Louis XIV. And he says, um, it's not simply the life of the prince that I am writing. It's not the annals of his reign. It's rather the history of the human mind drawing on the century that has been most glorious for the human mind. While the siècle does take Voltaire's history into his own lifetime, thereby impacting on the relationship between past and present that characterises historical writing, there's no fundamental difference to his historical approach. As he tells Duclos, in relation to this yet, and in relation to his sources for it, I uh, have no other memoirs or um, histories for this general history than about 200 volumes of memoirs printed that everyone knows. It's only a question of forming a well-proportioned body from all these disparate members, and to Painting with uh, true colours, but briefly, what Larrey, Lillier, Lamberti, Roussel, historians of the age of Louis XIV, etc., etc., falsified and delayed in volumes. And this is what he does. Voltaire has a fixed range of sources which he uses at will, combines, <laughs> clarifies, criticises, but which also, also in conjunction with his historical vision, inform his choices and dictate to a certain extent how he approaches the history of the period. The précis du siècle de Louis XV is a continuation of the siècle de Louis XIV, in chronological terms, even if parts of it were composed before the siècle was completed. But it is also, and perhaps inevitably, a mutation of Voltaire's original historical ideal as set out in the the letter to Duclos. While, as the name suggests, it aims to be a summary, a précis, it both overachieves and underachieves at different points in this regard. But while it presents itself as a work that would do for the reign of Louis XV, what the siècle had done for Louis XIV, it is in reality a much more problematic text than it first appears not least because of the changing nature of the relationship between past and present that underpins it. While the most significant account of Voltaire's historical oeuvre, written in the 20th century, Voltaire Historie by J. H. Broffert, dismissed it in a few lines as, on the one hand, full of flattery uh, for the great and the good, and on the other, propaganda of a different sort, by which he meant philosophical (coughs) propaganda, the précis provides a real insight into Voltaire's practice as a historian, and the evolution of this practice throughout his career. The composite nature of the text is something that has not received any attention, and I'll give an outline of that today, but mainly I want to focus on the problematic question of the relationship between past and present in the text. Because if Voltaire's histories are to be praised or condemned for their presentism, how relevant is such a characterisation when the historical text being analyzed is actually an account of Voltaire's present? If presentism is a problem or not for the history of the past, is it the ideal mode in which one should write the history of the present? Is Voltaire's approach to contemporary history presentist? If not, how does he approach it? How did Voltaire write Enlightenment history that was also contemporary history? As I've said, the text is quite diverse and composite in nature for a number of reasons. First, one could say that it is written by a historian who is adopting two different historical postures or two different modes of history writing. The first as the official historiographer of the crown. The second as a historian of Meurs. This impacts on the historical choices made, the content, the approach and the access to historical sources. Second, the précis is both a history of the past and a history of Voltaire's present day. It's therefore both historical and journalistic, for want of a better word, in the sense that its sources and distance from the events it describes vary all the time with an impact, once again, on the content, on the approach, and the access to historical sources. Third. It's written and rewritten over a period of time, with the result that it is perpetually in the process of composition. Now, as critical editions of Voltaire's works have shown, he was always in the process of rewriting, redrafting. But this phenomenon is different in the case of the précis, not because of a huge range of textual variants throughout the different editions, although this is a feature, but rather that the historical horizon is constantly shifting and must continuously be addressed anew, as Voltaire updates his texts to account for the most recent events in Louis XV's reign. The diverse nature of these different factors has a significant impact on this history, with the result that it is unlike any of Voltaire's other historical texts. What I would like to show is the impact of these factors on the content approach and sources, and most especially the relationship between past and present. The last of these elements, in particular, impacts on Voltaire's ability to adopt what one might call a historical perspective. More specifically, what Voltaire lacks is the ability to implot his historical narrative, to use uh, White's terminology, as outlined in his classic uh, study of the poetics of history, uh, metahistory. Now, White's ideas are, are hardly new and certainly no longer controversial. But just to remind you, White's argument suggests that one of the ways in which a historian gives meaning to a historical chronicle of events is by prefiguring a plot corresponding to one of four different modes of emplotment, romance, comedy, tragedy and satire, some of which can be combined. Now, the diversity which I've mentioned stems from the fact that the status of the précis as a discrete work is itself hugely problematic. And this is something I'll discuss first in general terms before examining how it manifests itself at the level of historical narration. The part of the précis that's easiest to isolate as a coherent whole is that series of chapters that corresponds to what Voltaire intended at the outset to be a history of the war of the Austrian succession. The Histoire de la guerre de 1741 was the original title. In 1745, Voltaire sought out the position of uh, Historiographe, official historiographer. In fact, he asked for the post directly from his former classmate, then Minister for Foreign Affairs, the Marquis d'Argenson, adding that he would carry it out for the knockdown price of 400 livres. He was granted the Brevet d'Historiographe in March 1745, just in time to sing the praises in his poem de Fontenoy of a young Louis XV who went to war in order to make peace. But he also had ambitions to write a history of this conflict, of which Fontenoy was a French highlight. In September 1745, Fauter began this work by preparing a tableau of Europe until 1741, a summary of what preceded the war. In November, he left for Versailles and worked continuously on his history, enjoying privileged access to documents from the War Archive, as well as contemporary reports sent directly to Versailles from European battlefields. But he gets quite bored of all the minute, tedious detail of battles. This is one of the reasons why I promised Joe that I wouldn't talk to you about the War of the Austrian Succession, this time when I agreed um, to read this paper about six months ago. Uh, As he said at another point in the letter to Duclos, which I've already quoted, uh, quoted, damn the details. Posterity forgets all of them. They are a vermin that kill great works. Which uh, gives you an idea of his his attitude to historical detail. When his correspondent, Frederick II of Prussia, tries to encourage him to devote himself to completing the Siecle de louis XIV* as opposed to working on uh, this history of the, the war of the Austrian succession he confesses his weariness. War must be really terrible, um, um, because the details of it are so boring. I'm sorry, just sort of translating these as I go along. After the French victory at Lofeld in July 1747, Fauteuil is hardly any more enthusiastic about it. And while the war continues longer than he would have wished, leaving no end in sight for his history of it, he starts to look for more interesting approaches to it and finds one particularly in the history of the pretender, Charles Edward Stuart, Bonnie Prince Charlie. The Peace of Aix-la-Chapelle, which was signed in October 1748, bringing an end to the hostilities, should have allowed Voltaire to finally publish his history of the war, which he became increasingly sick of. But the timing was unsuited to a work in praise of Louis XV, who was unpopular because of the peace. The um, Uh, women of the market stalls in uh, Paris had the expression around that time as stupid as the peace Uh, so the peace was particularly unpopular but also was France's banishing or abandonment of Bonnie Prince Charlie so while he waited for the opportune moment he continued to write in the spring of 1749 elements of the history of the war focusing now on the situation in the colonies the taking of Louisbourg by the British, Madras by the French, the famous voyage round the world undertaken by the British commodore George Anson. But then, as he was just on the verge of completing his history of the war, his major work as royal historiographer, he was forced to give up his position in order to leave France and join Frederick II, his new protector in Potsdam, making the the publication of this work out of the question. While in Prussia, Voltaire turns once again to the siècle, and here we see the impact of his loss of the position of royal historiographer on his use of contemporary historical research. As he tells the Duc de Richelieu, I tell you again that I have stretched the history of the century up into the present times in a, a shortened tableau of Europe since the Peace of Utrecht until 1750. No, contemporary, no living contemporary is named except you and the Maréchal de Belle, but without any affectation. While Voltaire still harboured hopes of publishing the Histoire de la guerre de 1741, he was warned against it, with D'Argental criticising the imprudence of giving to the public a portion, a, a, such an essential portion of the king's history without his approval. What we see then in this period is Voltaire's recognition that he can no longer use much of the material he gathered as historiograph, and cannot publish his own history of the war of the previous decade. In parallel, he continues to work on the siècle de Louis XIV, extending it into the reign of Louis XV and up until 1750. The Tableau de l'Europe, until 1750, which he mentions in the letter to Richelieu, draws on the original first chapter of the Histoire de la guerre de 1741, which he had begun so full of enthusiasm in 1745. This chapter, subsequently updated in the first edition of the siècle, is therefore the embryo of a work which may not have come into existence were it not for the aborted project of the Histoire de la guerre de 1741, which was published, apparently, without Falter's permission, in a pirated edition in 1755. So, just to give you an idea of um, how all these parts are uh, connected, this is in uh, September 1745. Falter begins his work on the Histoire de la guerre de 1741. With a chapter, this chapter one, with the title Situation of the Affairs of Europe, um, etc., um, outlining the, the origins of the War of the Austrian Succession, and proceeds to write the history of this conflict, relying more and more on eyewitness accounts as the events he describes become more contemporary. However, what we notice is that the nature of the chapters on this contemporary period are quite uniform in their approach, not only because of their subject matter, uh, the war and accounts of the war but also because of Voltaire's inability to analyze these events from a historical perspective, by which I mean the absence of the distance that characterizes the relationship between the historian and his or her material. He's confined to writing an account um, without any particular end in view, particularly as the war is ongoing. When he was not in a position to publish his history of the war, Futter began to tire of his own accounts of the war, as I've outlined, and sought out more interesting topics that he classifies as philosophical and wrote in the period 1748 to 1749. There uh, highlighted chapters 18 and 19 in, in blue on the left, and uh, 25 and 27, which as you see become integrated into a later edition of the Essay sur l'Histoire Générale, the Essay sur les Mœurs, as it would become in the third column So, uh, as he would explain in a, a letter of September 1756, just as this um, edition here of the siècle de Louis XIV was published as an extension to the Essay sur les Mœurs, or Essay sur l'Histoire Générale, as it was known then that he was publishing or had written an essay on general history until, our, uh, uh, until the present day. I found that the misfortunes of Prince Edward, the voyage of the Admiral Anson around the world, the revolution in Genoa, the taking of Madras, I found that these could furnish us with some philosophical reflections. I uh, write history only in as much as it can be useful To reason, and I neglect all those facts which are only good for the gazettes. So, um, these additions are closer. These additions, these philosophical chapters that he refers to, uh, that I've highlighted in blue, are closer to what one would expect from the author of the essay sur les mœurs, who is consciously broadening field of his inquiry beyond the specific events of the war, reflecting his broader interests as a historian of humanity. And these philosophical chapters, as he terms them, were designed to provide that sort of um, broader interest to the reader. In the same edition, um, in the third column there, which you know I, I refer to but for my own purposes as W56, it's just you have to name all these editions so you don't get lost. He attempts to integrate parts of his history of the war of the Austrian succession into a continuation of the essay and the set. You can see that the parts which were deemed to be unpublishable because of royal disapproval had to be left behind, but that other parts could be um, integrated, notably the first chapter, the overview, and these uh, philosophical chapters as well as some um, other uh, chapters. So he attempts to integrate part of the history into the essay and the set. He therefore fleshes out these early chapters, providing a series of tableaux or historical panoramas that seek to furnish a seamless link between the reigns of Louis XIV and Louis XV, while also maintaining the generality of his universal history. What we see from this history of the emergence of the text is that the précis is a composite text which received a separate identity after the fact. You'll note that at this stage it doesn't actually have the title précis. It would only become uh, or be published or appear under this title in 1768. Um, We also see that the text develops slowly and is consistently added to over a period of 20 years, Um, the first four chapters have their origin in the original historical tableau, all the way back in September 1745, that Falter prepared as an introduction to what has been referred to as the Leningrad manuscript um, of the history of the War of 1741, and was developed through the addition of detail and the fleshing out of what appeared initially. Um, The next set of chapters form the coherent core of the work, an account of the War of the Austrian Succession. Extremely detailed in the uh, edition of the Guerre, but reduced in, in detail when they actually became published in the Précis. They're stylistically coherent and benefit from the privileged access which Walter enjoyed to certain dispatches from the front as a historiographer. When they later appear in the Précis, they have significant variance, which often reduce the level of detail which Walter may have thought unnecessary in the new context of a summary of the reign of Louis XV. The chapters from 1748 to 49 and 62 to 63, or the, the first set, represent Walter's attempt to add philosophic, a philosophical touch to his history of the war to make it a little bit more digestible. He focuses on interesting characters, with two chapters on Bonnie Prince Charlie, and on, focuses on events around Europe, adding a more exotic and adventurous flavor to the dull soup of interminable European warfare. In the 1762-63, when the Sieff ap- appears as a separate text, rather than a, as a continuation of the essay, Walter deals with the contemporary history of the Seven Years' War, but his views are inevitably more general. He's no longer writing in the mode of Islo y a and he's not in a position to have access to what he would have seen as histori- uh, historiographer, which impacts on his sources, his panoramas are there, uh, pan- historical panora- panoramas are therefore prioritised. But we also see that he focuses on significant events or individuals. So, in um, chapter uh, thirty-eight, you see just there at the bottom, he examines the attempt to assassinate the king of uh, Portugal and the subsequent banishment of the. Jesuits, because of their alleged involvement in the plot. He also uses chapter 34 of the uh, on the French losses around the world to make the case for the Franco-Irish military officer, uh, Lally. Then, in 1768, um, these philosophical concerns come to the fore to an even greater extent in the additions to the précis when it finally receives this... Um, this, this title. He dedicates a whole chapter to his criticism of papal attempts to revive the bull in Cone which this chapter actually deals with um, deals more with the historical detail about the bull which is also, he also addresses in a number of, of overtly polemical pamphlets of the later 1760s, to the extent that you could say that this chapter doesn't even really fully belong in the case. seat in general, and at this stage in the work in particular. The two final chapters there uh, also confirm his philosophical concerns, where he outlines the changes required to Francis' criminal laws, and a uh, a chapter which borrows heavily from one of his own works. And then chapter 41 is finally added in 1775, after the death of Louis XV. Having shown the composite uh, nature of this work and the the slow development of it, and the complicated nature of its composition over a period of two decades, I now turn to a couple of concrete examples from the PC of the effect of this unusual development on the work and on how the relationship between past and the present manifests itself. For this purpose, I've chosen an early chapter, which could be described as historical, and a later contemporary chapter, which is more journalistic. If we look at the first four chapters of Autres précis from the perspective of their development over a long period through editions and the fleshing out of certain parts, we can see that the original narrative function of these chapters, which was originally just one chapter, was to act as a simple transition. The chapter was designed to fill in the gap in the chronological narrative between the end of the reign of Louis XIV and the start of the War of the Austrian Succession, a period of uh, 26 years. The chapter served as a background to the conflict, which was dealt with then in detail. However, as the chapter was fleshed out when it was later incorporated into the set, first as three chapters in 1756, then as four chapters in 1761. Its function changed from that of a background to the war to that of a summary of the regimes that followed the the death of Louis XIV. While about 45% of the contents of chapters two to four are taken from the original Tableau de l'Europe, all the way back in the top uh, left-hand corner, written in uh, 1745 in September, Um, what is added does not fundamentally change the framing of the chapters. Rather than rewriting them and rewriting a a proper history of Louis XV's reign, Voltaire proceeds by adding anecdotes, by filling in gaps and adding minor tableaux. For example, in chapter one, he adds a portrait of Cardinal Albarone as the instrumental figure in the changing political landscape. He adds a new passage on the Selmar conspiracy and an anecdote on the Duke of Berwick. However, his account of the Regency boils down to the Cardinal Dubois' influence on the regent and the effects of John Law's catastrophic financial system. Curiously, there's no mention whatsoever of the conciliar system of government which the regent introduced, perhaps the most significant change in a governmental level at the time. Indeed, the relationship between the Parlement of Paris and the regent, which was crucial for Louis XIV's will to be annulled by that court, and for Philippe d'Orléans to be named regent, is just mentioned in passage. For a historian with such a keen sense of the political, this is, at the very least, unusual. In the chapter containing his portrait of Cardinal Fleury, there's no mention of the Cardinal's efforts to suppress Jansenism, no mention of the confession certificates or the conflicts between the Crown and the Parlement. As a result of these narrative choices, Voltaire's early chapters of the précis retain the impression of a transition and never really break free from their transitional role within the Yet They read well, as Voltaire has a talent for choosing appropriate anecdotes that entertain or edify. But the result is insubstantial and slightly unbalanced. The first draft of the chapter is written 30 years after the events described. And Voltaire relies on a number of standard sources for the history of the Regency, Laude, Ode, uh, Piausson, du Jacques Morence has argued in his edition of the uh, Guerre de 1741 that in the original chapter, which was written in 1745, just as after Voltaire became historiograph, Voltaire passes very quickly over the diplomatic and military events until 1727, because these passing movements seem um, strange to him, contrary to the natural order but also by, because of a kind of historiographical reserve. What we see in the extended and embellished version that is the Précis is that part of this historiographical reserve has diminished in favour of a more anecdotal, more colourful version of events, which is more in ke- keeping with his approach to the siècle, of which this extended chapter became a part. But in spite of the changing circumstances in which Voltaire found himself when adding the, to the text, his silence on certain matters, such as the declaring of the regency by the Parlement, is strange. As of all people, Voltaire was uniquely placed to provide insight into this event through a personal eyewitness account. As he states himself in chapter one of the Cresci in relation to this key historical event of the 18th century, j'y I was there. But the purpose of his claim <coughs> to the status of an eyewitness is to refute a claim made by uh, La Beaumel in his Mémoire du Madame de, uh, de Maintenant, that the the, 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 consale, the, the, the um, place where the Parlement met, was full of armed guards. The relationship with the past described is therefore complex. Voltaire was apparently present, and we've no reason not to believe him, but does not provide an eyewitness account beyond a refutation of La minor claim. He first writes about the events in the mode of royal historiographer, adopting the kind of reserve that this required. He updates the chapter in the mode of a philosophical historian, adding the stylistic and content features that correspond to this approach. But in spite of these different perspectives on the event, the whole lacks in as the chapters that describe the events are only connected to what follows, because they provide a transition to it, even if it is an embellished transition. Another example of the problematic relationship between the present of narration and the narrated past, which I'd like to look at, can be found later in the précis in his account of events of a period he has just lived through. In chapter thirty six of the précis, entitled Interior Government of France. Uh, Quarrels and Adventures from 1750 to 1762, Voltaire deals with the recent political conflict between the clergy, the Parlement, and the Crown, which is dealt with in what can only be described as excessive journalistic detail. One of the main sources of these conflicts in the 1750s was the reintroduction of confession certificates, billets de confession, by the Archbishop of Paris, Christophe de Beaumont, in an effort to deal with uh, Jansenism, which still had a significant co- hold over certain uh, religious communities, especially in Catholic. Now, these billets de confession were evidence that an, an individual had received the sacraments from a priest who had accepted uh, the papal Unigenitus, which had been created in 1713 to condemn 101 supposedly Jansenist uh, teachings. Throughout the 1750s on the instructions of Christophe de Beaumont, the Archbishop of Paris, those who failed to produce confession certificates were refused the sacraments, leading to the deaths of some devout Catholics without the last rites. The Parlement of Paris and the provinces, and and those of the provinces, weighed into this controversy, condemning the Archbishop of Paris and other priests who refused the sacraments. The king annulled some of these condemnations, leading to the Parlement uh, going on strike, And in spite of uh, law of silence, which is introduced um, to deal with this, the Archbishop continued to require uh, respect for the papal bull, while the courts continued to condemn those who enforced it, leaving the king in the position where he felt obliged on different occasions to exile both the Archbishop of Paris and uh, the member of the magistrates of the Parlement. So these religious quarrels also infected to the general running of government in the kingdom by straining Crown-Parlement relations to the extent that, at this time during the Seven Years' War, the Crown faced continued opposition from the Parlement when it attempted to raise taxes. Not only this, but the Parlement's public discourse began to emphasise a version of its history that did not correspond to the, the traditional Thèse Royale, which viewed the Parlement as mere organs of monarchical power. Inspired by the writings of uh, Montesquieu, the Parlement began to assert their right to uh, remonstrate against royal edicts as a fundamental law of the realm. The different Parlement of the kingdom also began to act in solidarity with each other when it came to differences with the royal authorities over legislation, asserting that all the sovereign courts formed a single body whose origins were coeval with that of the monarchy itself. This was um, something which was going into a uh, full-blown political crisis at a time when France was involved in uh, what some considered to be one of the first world wars. In his opening paragraph, Voltaire frames his account of this episode as another episode in this... Uh, old and interminable war between the secular jurisdiction and ecclesiastical discipline, either not seeing or not wishing to address the political implications of the quarrels surrounding the papal unigenitus, and not seeing it as a continuation of the problems that beset the early part of Louis the reign, problems which he had incidentally outlined in, chapter, in a chapter of the CN, the, but the which go unmentioned. In the chapters on the early part of Louis XV's reign. Instead, he attributes the significant events of this petite guerre civile to a petit fait, as Walter had a habit of doing. He says, a place as superior in um, uh, the girls' hospital, which was uh, an institute for fallen women at the time, um, achieved uh, or led to this discord. Um, taking place, which was a a reference to the uh, general hospital affair in which the Archbishop of Paris attempted to remove all Jansenist influence from the board of this institution, but was frustrated in his efforts by the Parlement of Paris. When the king took the side of the Archbishop, the Parlement went on strike. When the Parlement was forced to return to work, the lawyers went on strike. Voltaire comments that these times resembled, uh, to a certain extent, the times of the the uh, Fronde, but without the horrors of civil war. Um, it only took a form which was susceptible to ridicule. Unlike his accounts of these types of conflicts in a more distant past, such as in the Fronde itself, where he presents them in a satirical and comedic mode, here the impression is slightly different. As he explains in the following paragraph, this ridicule was, however, troubling. Again, unlike his accounts of the regency and the earlier reign of Louis XV, the narrative technique used in this chapter presents a chronological and complete account providing details of every stage of the conflict. He details numerous instances of the refusal of sacraments and the resulting cases taken by the Parlement against, amongst others, the parish priests of Saint-Étienne, Saint-Jean-en-Greve, Rosin-Villiers, the bishops of Évres, the bishop of Nantes, Because of the identical nature of these cases, it could be suggested that Voltaire's narrative technique is one of accumulation, designed to demonstrate the ridiculous nature of these affairs through repetition. However, his tone throughout is quite serious, in spite of the low standing of many of those involved. Jansenism was particularly uh, beloved by the lower classes in Paris at the time. In other circumstances, you know, he, he would have been inspired to present this whole affair as a kind of burlesque parody. In the letter to Duclos, which I quoted at the start of this paper, Voltaire set out his historical project, but looking at the précis suggests that it was not possible for him to carry out this project on the present as he intended to do on the past. What we see in the examples from the précis that I've just quoted is, to borrow uh, White's words again, Vol- Voltaire's inability to prefigure as a possible object of knowledge the whole set of events that he seeks to describe. He lacked the sources and the traditional historical framing provided by historians who had come before him. I've also shown in the earlier example that devices such as inaugural and transitional motifs are warped by additions and developments that can add color or breadth in parts, but do not add depth and end up impacting on the coherence of the history. In the second example, he provides detail of the events he describes as opposed to relying on anecdotes for historical colour and philosophical interest. In place of this literary form of historical narrative, Voltaire substitutes a journalistic narrative that borders on political commentary but lacks critical teeth as the subject matter relates too closely to the political present for the approach to be presentist. In fact, he ends up becoming... Uh, that uh, Gazettier, the the Gazette writer, who he had uh, decades previously um, criticised for their uh, excessive emphasis on detail. This doesn't mean, however, that the précis becomes a sanitised text, characterised by the reserve of a historian who, for a time, was the crown's official historiographer. Instead, his history of the period could be seen as an early modern version of what François Artaud refers to in his work Régime d'Historicité, and, apologize, and apologies for the, the confusion here because Artaud uses the term Présentisme, uh, but it doesn't mean the same as the Présentism which uh, um, Pierre Faunce mentioned at the start. And this Présentisme that he uh, refers to uh, is his notion of this uh, this view of history as being suspended in a perpetual present, marked by uncertainty about the future and concern for the politics of now. The difference between Pierre Force's presentism and Hartog's presentism is uh, perhaps that the former presentism is a philosophical or political perspective, whereas for Hartog presentism is a historic perspective, which may or may not have uh, political implications, and which Hathor this defines as this contemporary experience of a perpetual present, imperceptible and almost immobile, or an omnipresent present. It must be remembered that Voltaire, who suffered ill health, or at least complained about suffering ill health for most of his life, would hardly have expected to outlive Louis XV, in this uncertain yet continuous present, Voltaire's focus is on what he believes to be the most pressing contemporary problems. And we see this in the changing emphasis of the chapters of the Pressy as the later additions are made to it. And if we look again at these, what we see is that the focus in these chapters in, in Dark Blue, added in 68, as I mentioned, the assassination of the king of Portugal and Jesuit influence. He says himself at the start of the chapter that a religious order should not be part of history. But this is an opportunity for him to criticise an influential religious community who it had been suggested or asserted uh, had influenced this assassination attempt. Also, there's his chapter 37 on uh, the attack by Daniel on the king, which allowed him to critique the role of the Parlement in uh, supposedly influencing Damien to uh, take revenge on the king or to force him to listen to the Parlement's um, uh, claims. There's also chapter 39 on the papal bull of Clement XIII, which is an opportunity to criticise the attempts of the papacy to involve itself in uh, the the temporal affairs uh, of kings. Also, 42. Chapter on the Laws, which is actually a prime example of Voltaire's self plagiarism. Two thirds of the text are taken from Voltaire's own uh, commentary on Beccaria's uh, of crimes and punishments, which he wrote in the aftermath of the death sentence uh, which was given to the Protestant Jean Calas. What we see is therefore a, a convergence in these later editions in uh, 1768. Uh, of um, Voltaire's political and polemical preoccupations. It should come as no surprise that in many of his polemical texts of this very period he uses the results of his historical research to make arguments in favour of religious tolerance, judicial reform and secularism. It's as if during this period there is a significant merging of the polemical in his historical texts while in parallel, historical reflection becomes an essential part of his polemical work. The précis could therefore be viewed as an example, the only complete example, perhaps, of the evolution of Voltaire's reflection on the function of history, as much in his historical works as in his polemical works. The work, written over an extended period Bears all the hallmarks of Voltaire's developing historical reflection and evolving historical practice. And it is arguably from this perspective that it should be viewed as a form of Enlightenment contemporary history. Thank you.